0: The believer is agreed with God. The war between the most holy God and his offending creatures is over in the case of blood-washed sinners, not suspended by a truce, but ended forever by a peace which passes all understanding. So begins Sermon 597 entitled Preparation for Revival, preached on the 30th of October 1864 by Spurgeon at the Metropolitan Tabernacle in Newington from Amos chapter 3 in verse 3. Can two walk together except they be agreed? Spurgeon begins this striking sermon with uh, quite an extended introduction. It's something that he uh, doesn't always do. Sometimes he's very brief and gets straight into the meat of the sermon. But on this occasion, he he covers quite a lot of territory before he gets to his main point. I hope that you will read this and I hope that you'll listen along. If you don't have a copy of this sermon, you can sign up at mediagratii.org slash podcasts, where you will be able to uh, sign up for a weekly newsletter where you'll get a PDF of the featured sermon. And if you want to follow on Twitter, if you have an account there, you can find us at Reading Spurgeon. And there you can Uh, find the uh, weekly readings and the uh, weekly featured sermon, which is this one on preparation for revival this week. What then are those things in which the believer agrees with God? He agrees with the, the Lord concerning the divine law. He confesses that the law is holy and just and good. He would not have it altered if he could. He rejoices in the way of God's testimonies more than in all riches. Yes, in his precepts does he take delight, praying evermore, Oh, let me not wander from your commandments. This is the, the spirit then of the man, the woman, who has the, the spirit of God in their hearts. And then uh, he agrees with God with regard to that great atonement for sin, which God himself has ordained and provided in the person of Jesus Christ the Christian gazes upon the matchless sacrifice of Calvary. While the Lord is content, the believer is satisfied. Where God finds satisfaction for his injured honor, the believer finds the noblest object of admiration and admiration. So when a man is converted, when God in his mercy makes peace through the blood of Christ and applies that blood to a man's heart concerning the law, and concerning salvation from sin against God, as the law reveals it in our hearts, become things in which the believer fully agrees with God. And so, says Spurgeon, I hope that most of us who are here met in the name of Jesus feel this deep, sincere and constant agreement with the Lord. Yes, we've been guilty of murmuring at his will, but yet our newborn nature, ever more at its core and centre, knows that the will of the Lord is wise and good and so we say, not as I will, but as you will. When we're tempted to rebellion, we, we nevertheless struggle after complete resignation of wishes and desires in us to the will of the Most High, the Most Wise, the Most Good God. And the text then, Amos 3 and verse 3, can two walk together except they be agreed, reminds us that this agreement gives us power to walk with God. When two are agreed, then they can walk together. And if we are agreed with God, then we have this communion with the Lord God. No greater distance this day between you and your God, says Spurgeon, than Jacob had when he laid hold upon the angel and prevailed. Isn't that wonderful? He is your father, as truly as he was the father of the people whom he covered by day with a cloud and cheered by night with a pillar of fire. And though no Shekinah lights up a golden mercy seat, yet the throne of grace is quite as glorious and even more accessible than in the days of old. And so it should be the Christian's delight to be always with his God, walking with him in unbroken fellowship, not just taking a turn or two with God, but walking with him over the space of years. And that walking implies action and it involves progress whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, we should do it all in the name of the Lord Christ and all our progress should be with God. Now you might be saying, well, wow, this, is, this is good stuff. This is rich ministry. It is. And this is just the preamble. This is just the introduction. Spurgeon's just using these things to set the scene. We must agree with someone with whom we walk. If we agree with God because of his grace in Christ toward us, then we are able to walk with him. And that brings Spurgeon then to the thrust of his sermon because it is a time when the church in the Metropolitan Tabernacle was seeking God to revive true religion in their midst. They were longing to know more of God's power in their hearts. They were desperate to see the the arm of the Lord made bare in the work of his kingdom. And so, says Spurgeon, we've been, we've been crying for this. There are signs that God is at work, but we want something more than we have ever seen. Here's that beautiful eagerness, that relish, that zest for not just life, but for spiritual life. And so he says we need as the first and most essential thing in this matter that God should walk with us. In vain we shall struggle after revival unless we have God's presence. If then we desire to have his presence with us, we must see to it that we are perfectly agreed with him, both in the design of the work and in the method of it. And I desire this morning to stir up your pure minds to heart-searching and vigilant self-examination, that every false way may be purged from us, since God will not walk with us as a church unless we be agreed with him. So you see how the, the introduction leads up to this. If two are agreed, then they can walk together. We want God to walk with us, and therefore we must agree with him. And you notice the direction that that goes in. It is not that God needs to change. It is not that God needs to adapt. It is not that God needs to, as it were, take things easy. He is the God of heaven and of earth. He is the most high and the most holy. And it is we who need to bring ourselves into a state of agreement with him. And so, says Spurgeon, he's simply going to remark, first of all, that we desire in this matter to walk together with God and that if that's to be the case, we must be agreed with him and therefore we desire to purge ourselves of everything which would mar our perfect agreement with God and so prevent his coming to our aid. And Spurgeon said he feels out of tune and all the strings of his harp loosened. He, it's, it's a poetic way of basically saying he himself feels very much out of sorts and unfit to do the work of the kingdom this morning. But the chief musician, he says, understands his instruments. He knows how to get music out of us, and in answer to prayer, he will doubtless sustain us and give a blessing. So then, that first point, a vow we avow our desire that in our present efforts we may walk with God. Why? Because if that's not the case, our strivings after revival would be very wearisome to us. I know of nothing, he says, more saddening than to attend a prayer meeting where the devotion is forced and the fervour laborious, where brothers puff and strain like engines with a load behind them too heavy for them to drag. Basically, it's... It's a performance. It's an effort. There's, there's no joy. There's no eagerness. There's no delight. There's no true seeking the face of God. And that's what we need when God's Spirit has really been at work with us. That's what we have an appetite for when we meet to pray. Not that we'll puff and blow through another few tired petitions, but that we would be seeking God with the help of the Holy Spirit. He says, let's stay as we are, Lord crying and groaning to see better days rather than be puffed up with the notion of revival without your own power in it. No special prayer meetings merely for the sake of them, but oh special blessings as the result of sincere prayer. If you don't intend to help us now let us weep in secret but let us not rejoice in a mere name if the substance be lacking. It's it's striking how fearful, righteously fearful spurgeon is of of a mechanistic approach to religion, of a a mere externality in the things of God. He says during a course of meetings by which we desire to excite the hearts of believers to a deeper interest in spiritual things, if there's no gracious power in them, you'll soon perceive a dullness, a flagging, a, a heaviness, a weariness stealing over the assembly, the numbers decline, the prayers become less fervent, and the whole thing degenerates into a hollow sham or a mournful monotony. And perhaps you know what it's like in the congregation which you're a part, or the church which you serve, and you've, you've labored to do something. You've, you've, you've made extra investments, and you've prayed and you've worked. And rather than the thing lifting up, you find it dragging down, and and people become wearied and complaining, and. Uh, everything just seems to be a a great drag and Spurgeon says if God's not with us that's what's going to happen every time and so there'll not only be weariness but such efforts will always end in disappointment unless God walks with us yes we may pray and pray and pray but there'll be no conversions no sense of quickening unless the Spirit's working is distinctly recognized the minister shall be just as much a preacher of the mere letter as ever he was, the church officers as formal and official as ever they were, the church members as inconsistent and as indifferent as they were used to be, the congregation as uninterested and as unmoved as they were in the worst times, unless the Spirit of God work with us. Here's the appetite again. Here's the desire. Here's the the, the earnest desire and, and pleading that God may walk with us. This is what is needful in the churches to which we belong. And again, he says, supposing that in our attempt at revival we should not be favoured with the presence of God, then prayer will be greatly dishonoured. He says, I take it that when a church draws near to God in special prayer, asking any mercy, if she does not receive that mercy on account of some disagreement with God, then her belief in prayer is for the future greatly weakened. And this is a most serious evil, for it loosens the girdle of the loins of God's saints. People end up thinking that prayer doesn't work, that there's no value in it, there's no point in it. Why? Because not that God is not willing to bless but because there was some distance between us. And this is why then we need God to draw near to us. And this is why we need to ask the question, are we truly agreed? And then, says Spurgeon, this this religion, this revival that, that comes to nothing, this appetite for something from God, if God does not draw near, it leaves the church in a worse condition than it was before. Spurgeon says, and It seems that he's right looking historically. One of the worst times in the Christian church is generally that which follows the excitement of revival. And if that revival was merely outward, if it had little or no reality in it, the mischief done is awful and incalculable. I'd rather see a church asleep, says Spurgeon, than see it wake into the fever of fanaticism. Better that she should lie still than do mischief. We've got this terrible tendency to confuse activity and life. Uh, A puppet dancing on a string rather than a living creature striving and serving. And Spurgeon says "It's, it's better just to lie still than it is to be moved to frantic but lifeless activity. You can make the corpse jerk, but it actually needs life from heaven. And says Spurgeon... When you think about this, think too about the blessings that come when God is present with his people. Listen to what he says. Ah, what holy quickening shall come upon every one of us. The preacher will not have to lament that he has so little power in prayer, both alone and in your presence. He shall be strengthened to intercede as an angel of God. You shall not have to mourn that the service lacks its former sweetness. You will feel the blessedness you knew when first you saw the Lord. You will not have to mourn that you are cold and dead, that your songs languish and that your prayers expire. Instead thereof, every action shall be fraught with vigour, every thought shall glow with earnestness, every word shall be clothed with divine power. Let God arise, and doubts and fears shall betake themselves to their hiding places, as the bats conceal themselves at the rising of the dawn. Let the Lord visit you, and difficulties which frown like alps will sink to plains. Let him arise, and all your enemies shall flee before you as the smoke before the wind. The heavens shall drop with showers of mercy, and even your sins and all the guilt of them shall shake as Sinai shook at the presence of the God of Israel church with God's presence, he says, is holy, happy, united, earnest, laborious, successful, fair as the moon before the Lord, clear as the sun in the eyes of men, terrible as an army with banners to her enemies. Isn't that a wonderful prospect? Doesn't that make us desire that God should walk with us and we with him? Wider blessings also will follow. A church is never blessed alone, If any one church shall stand in the vigour of piety other churches shall take example from that church and so make an advance toward a better state. It stirs up other believers and we might say it has an impact too on those who are outside. And all that brings Spurgeon to his second point that if we would have the presence of God it is necessary that we should be agreed with him. After all How can two walk together unless they be agreed? What then are some of the other things? We've we've mentioned some in the introduction, but what are some of those things in which we must agree with God? The first of them is the end or the purpose of our Christian existence. God has formed us for himself that we may show forth his praise. We are called, we are saved, that we might live unto Christ and not self. Spurgeon speaks plainly. There are many professors, many Christian professors, those who claim to be Christians, and some in this church, he says, who at least appear to believe that the main end of their Christian existence is to get to heaven, uh, to get as much money as they can on earth, to leave as much as they can to their children when they die. I say to get to heaven, for they selfishly include that as one of the designs of divine grace. But I question if it were not for their happiness to go to heaven, whether they would care so much about going, if it were only for God's glory. For their way of living upon earth is always thus, What shall I eat? What shall I drink? And with what shall I be clothed? What he's saying is that there's a horrible inherent selfishness in so many who are quite eager for God's blessings. But the blessings terminate not on God, but on themselves. They want to be blessed so that they may be comfortable, not that God may be glorified. And that, says Spurgeon, is a disagreement with God, because the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Oh, I pray then that I may feel that I am God's man, that I have not a hair on my head which is not consecrated, not a drop of my blood which is not dedicated to his cause. And I pray, brothers and sisters, that you may feel the same, that selfishness may clean die out of you, that you may be able to say without any straining of the truth, I have nothing to care for nor to live for in this world, but that I may glorify God and spread forth the savour of my Saviour's name. It would be no loss to lose such persons, says Spurgeon, as those who who are living for themselves, but it would be a spiritual benefit to the entire cause if this dead lumber were cast out. When the body gets a piece of rotten bone into it, it never rests till with pain it casts out the dead thing. And so with the church. The church may be increased by dead members, but when she begins to get vigorous and full of life, her first effort is with much pain, perhaps with much marring of her present beauty, to cause the dead substance to come forth. And if this should be the case, though we shall pity those who are cast forth, yet for our own health's sake, we may thank God and take courage. That puts a very different complexion on some of the trials we have in church life, does it not? Uh, one older minister friend of mine talks about the blessed subtractions. And that's what Spurgeon is speaking about, that the, the dead lumber, the, uh, the gangrenous limb the rotten bone that needs to be expelled, and by what? By the, the liveliness of the body as a whole. There is almost always pruning before there can be any real fruitfulness. And then, says Spurgeon, we need to agree with God as to the real desirableness and necessity of the conversion of souls. Our God thinks souls to be so precious that if a man could gain the whole world and lose his soul he would in fact be a loser. Do we agree with God in this? Isn't that an important question for us? Can we say that we are desperate to see sinners being saved? That we we weep over them as Christ did? That we're ready to lay down our lives for them as Christ did? Is there a cursed lethargy in our hearts is there an indifferentism Spurgeon calls it these he says are our bane our burden our hindrance may God forgive us and stir us up to feel that our heart will not rest unless poor sinners are plucked as brands from the burning do we agree with God in this and then do we agree as to the means to be used in revival And Spurgeon identifies two primary channels, the first being the preaching of Christ Jesus. It is the way by which believers shall be saved. God's great agency is the Holy Spirit. I would not bend my knee once in prayer, he says, much less day by day to win a mere excitement. We have done without it and we shall do without it by the grace of God. But I would give my eyes if I might but know that the Holy Spirit himself would come forth and show what divinity can do in turning hearts of stone to flesh. Are we agreed with God that it must be by preaching? not sweet music or pictures or vestments, fancy garments or baptismal water or confirmation or human rights. We are not playing games. We are not trying to entertain goats. We are not trying to attract people by carnal means. We preach Christ crucified, and we believe that that is what God will use to revive his church and to bring in the lost. But then also, there must be the instrumentality of all members Spurgeon says many of you are engaged in works of usefulness and I will make this my boast this day that I had never thought that I should meet with the people so apostolic in their zeal as most of you have been I've marveled and my heart has rejoiced when I've seen what self-sacrifice some of the poorest among you have made for Christ what zeal what enthusiasm you've manifested in the spreading abroad of the Saviour's name but there's praise and there's grief There are still some of you who are doing nothing whatever. You have a name to live, but I fear that you are dead. You are very seldom at a prayer meeting. Even some church members and persons whom I know are not kept at home by business, but by sheer indifference to the cause of God. Some of you are never provoked to zeal and to good works. Remember, Spurgeon has said he doesn't want people just to come to the prayer meeting because they're obliged to come to the prayer meeting. He doesn't want them to go and pray with painted fire. But he does want them to be there with their hearts hot, seeking after the glory of God, and then their hands strengthened to go out and work for his kingdom. Another matter in which we need to be agreed is to, uh, with regard to our utter helplessness in this work. I fear that some of us never go low enough to be blessed, says the preacher. When a man says, oh, we're getting on very well, we don't need any revival that I know of. He's not low enough to be blessed. And when we pray to God with pride in us, with self-exaltation, with confidence in our own zeal, or even in the prevalence of our own prayers by themselves, we've not come low enough to be blessed. A humble church will be a blessed church, willing to confess its own errors and failures and to lie at the foot of Christ's cross. Then we are in a position to be favoured. And, says Spurgeon, you need to be agreed with God that all the glory, if any good is done and any conversions occur, all the glory must be God's and God's alone. Revivals have often been spoiled, either by people boasting that a minister was the means of them or that the work was done without ministers, rather than saying, God, in his mercy, has used weak and feeble instruments to accomplish his great purposes. Crowns, 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 yes but all for your head, O oh Jesus, laurels and wreaths, yes, but none for man, all for him whose own right hand and whose holy arm has gotten him the victory. We must be agreed upon this point. And so says Spurgeon, if this is what we desire in terms of walking with God, and if these are the things in which, in which we must be agreed with God, thirdly and finally, let us then put away all those things which offend God. Our God. To agree with God we need to root out all that distresses and displeases him. Whenever God would visit his people, he always demands of them some preparatory purging, that they may be fit to behold his presence. For two cannot walk together unless that which would make them disagree be purged out. And so what are the things that Spurgeon suggests we must be looking at? He says, I I I can't preach to you indiscriminately, but every man must preach to himself. Is there pride in me? Am I puffed up with my talent, my substance, my character, my success? Am I slothful? Do I waste hours which I might usefully employ? Do I have the levity of the butterfly which flits from flower to flower but drinks no honey from any of them? Or the industry of the bee which, wherever it lights, would find some sweet store for the hive? Or am I guilty of worldliness, the crying sin of many in the Christian church? Am I seen where my master would not go? Do I love amusements? Television programs, series, websites, places, people which cannot afford me comfort when I reflect upon them and which I would never indulge in if I thought that Christ would come while I was at them. Or am I as showy, as volatile, as frivolous as men and women of the world? Am I obsessed with fame and fortune? Am I desperate to be wearing the right clothes and seen in the right places and listening to the right music and whatever else it may be? If so, if I love the world, the love of the Father is not in me and he cannot walk with me for we are not agreed. Or again, am I covetous? Do I scrape and grind? Is my first thought not, how can I honour my God, but how can I accumulate my wealth? When I gain wealth, do I forget to make use of it as a steward? If so, God is not agreed with me, for I am a thief with God's substance. I have set myself up for the master instead of being the servant, and God will not walk with me till I begin to feel that all this is not my own but his, and that I must use it in his fear. Am I of an angry spirit? I think there's a lot of anger today in the church. I I see it so often and it's terrifying. It's ugly. Am I harsh towards my brothers? Do I cherish envy toward those who are better than myself or contempt toward those who are worse off? If so, God cannot walk with me, for God hates envy and all contempt of the poor is abhorrent to him. Is there any lust in me? Do I indulge the flesh Am I fond of carnal indulgences by which my soul suffers? He talks about not just sexual immorality, but wantonness and gluttony and, and drunkenness and says these are the things which drive a wedge between a believer and his God. These are things that damage our relationship. Are we getting rid of all the leaven? For my own part he says i cry unto my master that if there be anything that can make me more fit to be the messenger of god to you and to the sons of men however painful might be that preparatory purging process that god would graciously be pleased not to spare me of it if by sickness if by serious calamities if by slander and rebuke more honor can be brought to god then hail and welcome All these things, they shall be my joy, and to receive them shall be my delight. I pray you, this is the preacher, utter the same desire. Lord, make me fit to be the means of glorifying you. brothers and sisters, would we dare to say that, dare to pray that, if by sickness, by serious calamity, by slander and rebuke, more honour can be brought to the Lord, then hail and welcome all these things. I'm not sure many of us, perhaps even any of us, are ready to to pray like that to the God who is able to bless so that his name will be glorified in the earth. Do Do we really want to be useful? Do we really want this purging process in our souls, let alone in our churches? Spurgeon asks, do you want forever to go on in the old dead and alive way in which the churches are just now? Do you feel no sacred passion stirring your breast to anguish for the present and to hope for the future? Oh, you cravens, you, you fearful ones, you who dread the battle, slink to your beds. But you who have your master's spirit in you and would long to see brighter and better days, lift up your heads with confidence in him who will walk with us if we be agreed. May I just leave that there with you? May I leave that that question at the end with you? That you're ready to pray. Lord, make me fit to be the means of glorifying you. Let's think about that. Let's pray like that. Let's desire that we might root out all that distances us from God, that we might enjoy the blessings of those who walk with the Lord when we are agreed with him. And I trust you'll join me next time to uh, listen again, to read again. We're moving on to another sermon. This time it's number 600. We're reading from 598 to 604 and the the sermon that we're looking at will be the centurion, or an exhortation to the virtuous. So let us ask God to make us useful in his hands to revive his church, and may even these things be a means of doing so. Thank you for listening. I'm Jeremy Walker, and From the Heart of Spurgeon is a podcast from Media Gratiae. For more resources like this, including a biographical film of Spurgeon's life and labours, visit mediagratii.org.